we were walking by the gates of hell. Not the not the literal gates of hell, but the, the ones at Caesarea Philippi, where the uh, where the pagan worshippers had their idols. We're walking by, and we are we're nervous. Our, our hearts are beating out of our chest because we're Jewish men. This is not our place. We don't fit in. We're wondering why we're there. And Jesus stops. And he looks at us and he just asks this question. Who do people say I am? Okay, well, we think. Uh, Bartholomew, he spoke up. Bart said, some people say John the Baptist. Someone else, uh, I don't remember who it was, said, some people say a prophet. Someone else said Elijah. And then Jesus just interrupts us. And he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? That's that's a big question. You don't want to get this one wrong. So we're all sitting there in awkward silence. And Peter just starts pointing. Nothing's coming out of his mouth, just pointing. And then it just came out. You are the Christ. And Jesus just smiles. When he smiled, it just... Anyway, that's that's when I, I noticed that the whole time we'd been talking, Jesus had been digging in the dirt. He would do that. He stands up and he's got this stone in his hand. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, you're right, I'm the Christ. And, and then he looked at Peter and he said, you're the rock, a rock on which to build my church, a church that will be so strong that not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. So, who do I say he is? I saw things that to this day I can't explain. I experienced a love so deep that it changes you from the inside out. He is the Christ. And like he said, he's coming back to rescue us. And nothing can stop him. Nothing. Not even the gates of hell can stop him.
We're in the fourth week of this series, and if you are not caught up, this is one series you really need to be caught up on. So I want to encourage you to get a a CD or go to nlccp.com, and you can get the the messages from the past few weeks. Each uh, message builds on the one before, and um, last week after the first service, Artis uh, Prickett came up to me, and he said, he said, I've been waiting 60 years to hear what I should have heard 60 years ago, and he's talking about how we can trust the Bible, how you can know the Bible's true, And, and he said that was a message he needed to hear and he thanked me for that. Hannah and I were sitting at lunch last week and we were talking about stuff and, and her take on it was, she said, I love it when atheists get put in their place. Now that wasn't my purpose, but, but yes, that was, that was at least part of what came out of that. And then, um, on the back of her card, um, Brandy actually said, these are the exact conversations that I've been having. I've been studying this material to help me with my conversations. So whether or not you are, um, apologetics or something that you want to learn more about, um, we all need to be prepared. In fact, the scripture tells us this in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I think people are walking away from Christianity because we don't have the answers. And there are answers. There's an adult version of Christianity that can withstand anything critics throw at them. But most Christians, at least in America, don't know that. Now, we said that both the Old Testament and the New Testament document some things that happened. Um, We have eyewitness testimony that is very compelling. And I've been reading, uh, one of the books I've been studying is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. This is a great book. And they keep using this phrase when they talk about Jesus, whether he was a real person. They get to the end of the chapter and they say, we've got enough evidence to take this into a court of law and prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. When they talk about the resurrection, when they talk about the scriptures, they say we we can go beyond a reasonable doubt doubt. And, um, they, uh, they even argue that skeptics um, have a belief system and that, that really there are no neutral positions when it comes to beliefs. They, they quote a guy named, um, Philip Johnson, and he was the father of the intelligent design, the first person who came up with that term to describe that something happened before the Big Bang, and that was an intelligent designer. And Philip says this about skeptics. He says, um, there are no neutral positions. Then he says, um, one who claims to be a skeptic of one set of beliefs is actually a true believer in another set of beliefs. In other words, I'm a Christian, so I'm skeptical of atheists. Right? Of atheistic beliefs. I've studied Christianity. I believe in Christianity. So it's okay to say you're skeptical of something, but know that you are still a believer in something else. So a a skeptic, an atheist, is skeptical of Christianity, but they are a true believer in atheism. Let me read you a a couple of things from this book. Um, First of all, this is their premise and how they came with their title. I don't have enough uh, faith to, to be an atheist. The scientific evidence overwhelmingly confirms that the universe exploded out of nothing. Either someone created something out of nothing, that's the Christian view, or someone or no one created something out of nothing, that's the atheistic view. Which is more reasonable? They say the Christian view. Which view requires more faith? The atheistic view. Second thing, they say the simplest life form, the simplest life form contained information equivalent of a thousand encyclopedias. Christians believe only an intelligent designer can create a life form containing the equivalent of a thousand encyclopedias. Atheists believe non-intelligent forces can do it. Christians have evidence to support their conclusions. Since atheists don't have any such evidence, their belief requires a lot more faith. 
I love this one. Hundreds of years beforehand, ancient writings foretold the coming of a man who would actually be God. This man God, it was foretold, would be born into a particular city from a particular bloodline and suffer in a particular way, die at a particular time, and rise from the dead to atone for the sins of the world. Hundreds of years before it happened. Immediately after the predicted time, multiple eyewitnesses proclaimed and later recorded that those predicted events had actually occurred. Those eyewitnesses endured persecution and death when they could have saved themselves by denying the events. Thousands of people in Jerusalem were then converted after seeing or hearing of these events and this belief swept quickly across the ancient world. Ancient historians and writers allude to or confirm these events, and archaeology corroborates them. Having seen evidence from creation that God exists, that's point one they just talked about, Christians believe that these multiple lines of evidence show beyond a reasonable doubt that God had in, uh, that God had a hand in those events. Atheists must have a lot more faith to explain away the predictions, the eyewitness testimony, the willingness of the eyewitnesses to suffer and die, the origin of the Christian church, and the corroborating testimony of the other writers, archaeological finds, and other evidence that we will investigate. So we believe that there is a lot of evidence and that it requires actually less faith to believe in who Jesus was than atheists uh, believing there is no God. Now, let me ask you a question. And this is participation. This is not a trick question. What nationality was Jesus? Jewish. Let me ask you again. What nationality was Jesus? Jewish, not a trick question. In the first century, he tells Jewish people who had studied the scriptures, the Jewish, it wasn't called the Old Testament at that time, it's just the Jewish scriptures. People who had studied it, he tells them, you know what? The Old Testament, he didn't call it that, the Jewish scriptures are all about me. And the Jewish audience didn't take that very well. It's safe to say they were skeptical. So we're going to look at a couple of verses where Jesus talks about this. First of all, this is, we're going to look in Luke chapter four, and this is right after Jesus has been tempted. So this is at the very beginning of his ministry. He led out in the wilderness. He was tempted. He never sinned. And immediately after that, he goes to Nazareth, which is his hometown. And here's what he says, Luke chapter four, beginning in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus went to church every weekend. He stood up and read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Uh, unrolling it, he found the place where it was, where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him. He began by saying to them today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. At this point, he had not done any miracles. This is the beginning of his ministry. And he says, I came to fulfill all that stuff in the Old Testament. So Jesus believed that the Old Testament was about him. The Old Testament was about, there we go. It pointed to him. Now, after several months and and maybe a couple of years, they go on this video. I chose this video today about the, the, uh, who do you say I am? Because we're going to read that scripture. And also because Janie and I, when we went to Israel last year, we got to go to this place called Caesarea Philippi and I'd heard about it. I knew it was in the scripture, but I didn't really know anything about it. When we got there, it's this beautiful, um, waterfall and it's this brook and, and people swim in certain places. But as we started exploring, I start seeing all of these symbols, all these 
these weird spiritistic symbols and I start to feel uncomfortable because I realize that this whole place, the, the, the caves, there's caves all over the place. I keep sitting on this. Um, there's caves in, in every cave. There was some kind of monument to some kind of God that was not the real God that we worship. And I felt very uncomfortable. Like there was, there was a spiritual darkness that was hanging over this place. And I was telling Janie, I can't get out of here fast enough. It's interesting to me that it was right there where Jesus stops and he says, who do people say I am? Because there were gods all over these cliffs and in these caves. Well, some say Elijah, some say the prophet, um, all these different things. Who do you say I am? Right outside where all of these other people are talking about their gods, Jesus says, who am I? And that's, that's the setting for Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Right there in, in that setting, he says, you're the one and only. So his, not only did Jesus believe the Old Testament pointed him, his disciples, his followers believed that the Old Testament pointed him, that he was the Messiah. Now, a little bit later, he's crucified and he dies and everyone assumes his disciples were wrong. On Good Friday, after Jesus breathed his last, there were no Christ followers. There were no disciple followers proclaiming anything about Jesus on Saturday. No one on earth believed he was the son of God when they watched him die. But then we know Sunday happened. And the resurrection happened and Christianity exploded all over the known world because people saw him alive. Then his Jewish followers went back to the Jewish scriptures and they started studying all of those, those, uh, prophecies and they discovered that everything pointed to Jesus and he fulfilled them all. And they were saying, well, you know, we lost faith. He was gone, but now he's back. Now we're back. And Jesus, um, fulfills everything. The whole old Testament points to him. Now, I want to stop right here and I just want to give you an assignment over these next two weeks. It won't take you two weeks. It should take you about five minutes. There's one particular prophecy in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah chapter 53. And I want to challenge you to read it. There's only 12 verses in it. It won't take you long. But when you read it, I want you to ask, who are these verses describing? Who are they talking about? Let me tell you about it first. Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born. And, and nobody believed this was about Jesus until after he rose from the dead. Now, in the Old Testament, there are about 48 to 50 what they call major predictions about the Messiah. Uh, depends on how you number them. That's why I say 48 to 50. One scholar said there's 71 predictions, prophecies in the Old Testament. And these form like a fingerprint. A fingerprint is something that only you have. You, yours is unique. Well, this forms a fingerprint for the Messiah, a, a figurative fingerprint, where only the Messiah could fulfill all of those predictions. This was so that the Jews would know who was an imposter. They could throw him out. If you don't fulfill every one of these, you are an imposter. Now, I tell you all that because I want to tell you about a couple of Jews who encountered Isaiah chapter 53 and it rocked their world. The first one is named Louis Lapides. In this book, The Case for Christ, I keep mentioning this. Uh, by the way, this movie comes out April 7th. Um, I don't think it's coming here. It's going to be in, in Tyler in at two different theaters, Studio Movie Grill. If you're interested in going to that, I want to take a, a group over or meet a group over there, whatever. Because um, in it, Lee Strobel, who was an atheist, becomes a Christian. Well, he goes around and he, he uh, interviews all of these 
experts. He interviews Louis Lapides and he asks him some things. So here's why I interviewed Louis because his, this chapter is called Fingerprint Evidence Did Jesus and Jesus Alone Match the Identity of the Messiah? Louis was not an expert. In fact, he grew up in a Hebrew home, in a Jewish home. He said, We never talked about the Messiah. He went to a Hebrew school. He said, The Messiah was never mentioned in my Hebrew school. And he said that, that we didn't do anything that a good Jew would do. We didn't, we didn't stop working on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is kind of a crazy thing. Janie and I got to spend two Sabbaths when we were in Israel. And one of the things I remember the most is, is they, if you're a, a strict Orthodox Jew, you don't work. There's only certain amounts of, of, uh, ground you can walk on a, on a Sabbath day. But if you're at a hotel, they have something called a Sabbath elevator. So like if you got four elevators, one of them on the Sabbath is a Sabbath elevator. If you got six elevators, still one of them is a Sabbath elevator. We did not know this. We're up on several floors on one of these hotels. We went down to breakfast. We accidentally got on the Sabbath elevator. Well, the Sabbath elevator, you don't put push a button because that would be considered work. So it stops on every floor and the doors automatically open and close so that you don't have to do any work on the Sabbath. And so Janie and I, not being the the Jewish Sabbath observers, first time we realized we're like, we're on the Sabbath elevator. That door's open. We ran so we could get on one that went all the way up. Anyway, I just tell you that to say, Lewis said, we weren't good Jews as far as following the Sabbath. He said, we didn't have a kosher home. And so he was asked about the Messiah, never came up in school, um, never came up in his home. Then he was asked about Jesus. And he said, the only thing we ever heard about Jesus was bad stuff. Let me tell you where he got his idea. He says, Jesus, we only talked about derogatorily. Basically, he was never discussed. Here's what he says. My impressions of Jesus came from seeing Catholic churches. There was the cross, the crown of thorns, the pierced side, the blood coming from his head. It didn't make any sense to me. Why would you worship a man on a cross with nails in his hands and his feet? I never once thought Jesus had any connection to the Jewish people. I just thought he was the God, Lord case G of the Gentiles. Then someone asked him about the New Testament and he thought because the the Jews do not trust the New Testament. They trust only the Jewish scriptures. So he was asked about the New Testament and he said, well, I thought the New Testament was basically a handbook on anti-Semitism, how to hate the Jews, how to kill the Jews, how to massacre the Jews. This is what a lot of Jewish people believe. Eventually, someone gave him a Bible, the the Gentile Bible with the New Testament and the Old Testament. He says, is the New Testament in there? The guy said, yeah, it's the Bible. And he goes, well, I'll read the old one, but I'm not reading the new one. The guy said, fine, you read through the Old Testament, especially Isaiah 53, and, and ask the question, who's it talking about? He said, those verses sure sounded like Jesus. And it was so clear to him that he thought that, that Christians had rewritten the Old Testament. And in fact, he said, he said, I realized I was in trouble because if this is true, this was the Messiah. So he believed that it was a fake Bible. He calls his stepmom and has her send him the Jewish Bible. And he compares the two, the Isaiah 53 from the, from the Christian or Gentile Bible and the Jewish Bible. And they're exactly the same. And then he gets really messed up. Now, before I tell you the rest of his story, let me tell you that five or six times I've read this, I've heard people, Jews, give this type of deal. They cannot explain away Isaiah 53. In this book, there's a young man named Barry Leventhal. He was a football player on UCLA's first ever Rose Bowl championship team in 1966. One of his best friends became a Christian and started talking to him about Jesus. He didn't want to hear about Jesus. And he eventually introduced him to this man named Howe, who worked for Campus Crusade for Christ. One day, they were at the... uh, uh, at the student center and Hal and, um, Barry were talking about, um, 
I think I've lost my place here. Hal and Barry were talking about Jesus being the Messiah. And, and uh, Barry said, oh, no, absolutely not. He goes to Isaiah 53 and he said, the suffering servant is Jesus. And he goes, how dare you? And Hal says, how dare I what? And he says, use a fake Bible. This is a fake Bible. And they said, no, no, no. He said, do you have a copy of the Tanakh, which is the, the Jewish Bible? And they said, yes, I do. He said, I hadn't opened it since my bar mitzvah. He said, I dare you to go home and read your Jewish Bible, Isaiah 53, compare it to what you see here. And Barry said, oh no, <laughs> Jesus is the Messiah. Both of these men eventually gave their lives to Christ. Now, Barry goes to his rabbi. He's so messed up. He goes to his rabbi and he says, all right, I got some college students telling me that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah, uh, is about Jesus. Who's it about? I need to know. And so the rabbi says, Barry, I must admit that as I read Isaiah 53, it does seem to be talking about Jesus. But since we Jews do not believe in Jesus, it can't be speaking about Jesus. Can't be. Barry said, and his quote was, I didn't think that was very kosher. And, and that's, <laughs> and he said, it sure seemed like circular reasoning. And it seemed like my rabbi was avoiding something. Well, Barry becomes a Christ follower and he's, he's a big time Christ follower. Even today, here's what he says about f- people who will not hear. He says, there are none who are as deaf as those who don't want to hear. Until a thousand years ago, until around 1040 AD, 1040, all of Jewish tradition taught that all of the Old Testament prophecies were talking about the Messiah, especially the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. In about uh, 1060, a rabbi named Rashi reinterpreted the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Anytime someone says they're going to reinterpret something, that should be a red flag that goes up because when they reinterpret it, it means they're going to deny something that, that people believe for 1700 years from the time of Isaiah until AD 1050, every Jewish tradition said that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was the Messiah. He reinterpreted it to say, no, 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 it's not the Messiah. It's the nation of Israel. I double dog dare you to read Isaiah 53 and ask, who's it about? You will not find it about Israel. Persecuted, dying for sins, pierced. Anyway, I'll tell you all of that. That's, that's, (laughs) that's an intro. After the resurrection, the, the Gentile believers became interested in the Old Testament scriptures, not because they wanted to be Jewish, but because they could see Jesus everywhere in them. And the Gentiles are the one who combined the two, and they first called it the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And this was incredibly offensive to the Jews. They're like, it's not an Old Covenant. This is, this is new to us. It's our lifestyle. And they said, nope, nope, Jesus is the one who starts the new covenant. And they quoted him in uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 20, when it says, in the same way, after he took, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, all of that to say, if Jesus matches the fingerprint of the Messiah from the Old Old Testament, which only one person could possibly match all of that stuff, he couldn't do it on his own because it predicted where he would be born. It would predicted, it predicted how he died. It would, it predicted when he would rise from the dead, all of those different things that he could not do himself. If he fulfilled all of those things, if his fingerprint was the fingerprint of the Messiah, if he predicted his own death and resurrection and then did it, that means he's telling the truth. And you can trust what he says about God. So let's see what he says about God. John chapter 14, verse seven. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So his disciples are standing around going, wait, what? wait, hello. 
And Philip says, asked the question that's on everyone's mind. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus says, you want to know what God says? Listen to me. And then the next part of that verse, he says, you want to know what God is doing? Watch me. That's how close he was to the father. And then look what he says in verse 11. Believe me when I say that I'm in the father and the father is in me. And now look at this bolded part. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. There's evidence. Jesus says there is. Jesus never said quit thinking and start believing. Jesus said follow the evidence to its conclusion. There is lots of evidence. Now, a couple of uh, quotes from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. I love C.S. Lewis, great thinker, and I want you to pay attention to what he says. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now let us get this clear among pantheists. Now a pantheist is one who believes that everything is God. The trees are God. The grass is God. The pavement is God. This iPad is God. You're God. I'm God. God is everywhere and everything. A theist believes that God created the world, he's outside the world, but that he holds everything together. A pantheist believes everything is God, an atheist believes there is no God. Okay, the pantheist, like the Indians, anyone might say that he was a part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God, in their language, meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. Do you realize how big it was for Jesus to claim he was God? If he didn't claim he was God, why did they kill him? People in our generation say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. When he was asked by the high priest, he said, are you the Christ, the Messiah? He said, I am. Everybody in the first century knew he was claiming to be God. Why do people in the 21st century not believe that? C.S. Lewis says it's the most shocking thing ever uttered by someone. Now, next quote. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept, accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would rather be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg. I think this is funny. If I were to say to you, I'm a poached egg, you would say, Doug has lost his ever loving mind. He's nuts. I'm a poached egg. I might put that on my status today. I'm a poached egg. I thought that was funny. So the thing, someone who said something like Jesus, he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell because he, he would know he's lying if he's not crazy. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I've heard this argument all my life. Oh, he's a great teacher, but he wasn't the son of God. He's not a great teacher if he's not who he says he was. Now, let's look at what Jesus said about God the Father. What if we only got our ideas of God from Jesus? Here's, here's what he says. The first thing is, Jesus said God is spirit. Not, not as in capital S. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit right now. We're talking about the essence of his being. 
He's immaterial, he's spaceless, he's timeless. He's talking to the woman at the well and he's crossing all kinds of barriers. He's crossing racial barriers, religious barriers, social barriers by talking to a woman. A rabbi would never talk to a woman, but Jesus did. And they're talking theologically and he comes to verse 24 and he says, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is part of why they were forbidden. The Jews were forbidden to make any idols, anything with your hands. God is spirit and you cannot craft something with your hands that represents spirit. All the other religions had some type of idols. They would make something and they would put them in prominent places. They would take them into battle, kind of like a a good luck charm. They would bow down to them, but not the Jews. God is spaceless, timeless, immaterial. So don't you craft anything. Don't you have any images of God because your God is not like that. God is spirit. Jesus. Jesus said it. Now, when you think about our universe, we've been talking about how the universe began and we've been studying these different things in in small groups. We believe, Christians believe in, in what scientists call a singularity. That means that before matter and time and laws of nature, there was nothing. And then an instant later, there was something. Christians believe that an uncreated creator who has more power than his creation exists And he did something to get it started. This is called the first cause. What was the first cause like? The first cause was timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and created time, space, and material. We believe that the designer has to have more power than the thing he designed. That's what Christians believe. God is spirit. Jesus said it. Second, Jesus said God is father. And this was radical for a Jew. And you need to understand it's not a reflection of your earthly father. This is the perfection of father. When Jesus called him father, it was the perfection of father. One day Jesus was praying because he was always praying, always praying. And his disciples look around, they go, I don't think we're doing this right. Because when he prays, stuff happens. When we pray, nothing happens. And so they say, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And look what he says in Luke chapter 11, verse 2. And I'm going to ask you to say what Jesus tells us to say. So get ready for that. When you pray, say, Father unheard of in the Jewish community to call God father. They would not even call him his name. They made up other names so that they wouldn't um, use the Lord's name in vain. They refused it. And then Jesus says, call him daddy, call him father, God. This was radical. And not only does Jesus tell us to call him father, Jesus says the only people who get to call him father are the ones who come through Jesus. He's the one that makes it possible for you to have this intimate personal relationship. God is not some far off person. Jesus said, he's your daddy. He's the perfection of father. And the closest you're ever going to get in this life and understanding who God is, is when you call him dad, when you get to call him father. Jesus said, he's spirit, he's father. And then John years later, remember John was the last uh, living disciple, apostle. And years later, he's thinking back, what did he learn about God from hanging out with Jesus for three years every day? Here's what he says. He says, God is love. Again, a Jew would never, nobody ever said God was love before Jesus came. Nobody said that because in the old Testament, the Jews believed that God loved them, that he chose the Jewish people. And if you read the old Testament, you know, he didn't choose them because they were worthy. He chose them but not because they were worthy. They believed that God loved the Jews and tolerated everybody else until they made him mad enough and then he wiped them out. They had no concept of God pursuing them as a loving father until Jesus Christ came. No one ever claimed God was love. And then look what John says in in 1 John 4, 16. 
He's on the, I, I think he was on the Isle of Patmos when he wrote this. God is love. Whoever lives in, uh, lives in love, lives in God and God in them. Radical for a Jew who believed God wiped people out just because. We can see it rather clearly in the Old Testament. We have the New Testament to help us interpret the Old Testament. They didn't. And then John, uh, in, in his first book, and by the way, there's the book of John, and then there's first, second, and third John. The book of John is the one that talks all about Jesus. First, second, and third John were letters to, to um, churches. But anyway, so in the book of John, verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 35, he quotes Jesus, and Jesus says, By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you do what? love one another. God is love and how people know we are his followers is if we love one another. The distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus is not how much Bible you know. It's not how much you give. It's not what denomination you are. And and I shared with the early service one time there was a lady in a business meeting stood up and she was being kind of cantankerous and she said, when I die, I want the word Baptist tattooed across my heart. And I, I sat there, I, I was watching this and I went, oh dear God, something's about to happen because Baptist is not what gets you to heaven. And I was talking to Janie later and I said, I want Jesus tattooed on my heart because he said he's the only way to heaven. When the distinguishing mark for a Christian is not what denomination you go to or you're a part of it's, do you love each other? When we have an offering for Heath and Heath never asked for that. The offering should be so overwhelming that people outside the walls go, there must be a God because look how they love each other. It should be normal for people to come to the church and say, this is more than I can bear and for us to bear each other's burdens. It's scriptural. The way people will know we love each other is if we demonstrate that. Our love shows them we're Christ followers. And if you aren't attached to a church, if you're not, if you're not in a member of a church and attached to a church, you can't do this part of, you can't do any of the one another's of the new Testament because you're supposed to do this for other Christians. When you love one another, people come to Christ because they say, I want to be a part of that. Now shade requires the sun. You can have sun with no shade, but you can't have shade with no sun. And I don't think we have any Sun today. Just like shade requires the sun, evil, hang on with me for just a second, we're done. Evil requires good. Goodness must pre-exist evil or you wouldn't even know what evil was. If there is evil, it means they're good. Love must pre-exist unlove or you wouldn't know what love is. And so we believe God cannot be evil because God, his essence is love. Now, look at 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. We wouldn't know what love is unless God showed us. We wouldn't know about good without God. All those Roman gods, all those gods of mythology, they were mean. They were reflections of people. They did evil things. The God of Christianity was different. He is love. He, there is no evil in him. And if you've ever said, do the right thing, if you've ever said, you ought to do this, if you've ever said, it is only right that you should do this, or if you've ever said, I, I just want justice... You are declaring the essence and existence of God. Because when a person seeks shade, they are acknowledging that the sun exists and it has power. And whenever you want justice or good, you're acknowledging that there is a good God who has morals. Atheists don't believe this. They had to redefine their atheism. 
Because they realize logically, if there is evil in the world, then there must be good. We wouldn't know what it was. And so they said, there is no value. Your mind is an illusion. Value is an illusion. Free choice is an illusion. Justice is an illusion. Because they knew logically, if you follow their arguments, without that redefining that, that you'll come to God. So they had to redefine all of their terms. If you've ever said... I, I believe God loves everybody. That is a distinctly Christian idea that came from John after he sat back and thought for years and years and years, what did I learn about God from hanging out with Jesus? God is love and he loves every, he loves everyone, but not everyone's going to get into heaven. Now, some of you are thinking if God is good, I hear this all the time. Why is there evil in the world? That's next week's sermon. You got to come next week. But let me ask you this. How do you even know there's evil in the world? What if it's just your opinion? It's what the atheists say. We wouldn't know anything about what we should do if there was no God. Evil in the world declares that there is a good that must preexist. Christians believe the good that preexists is God. And people all the time use this. Maybe we'll just start the sermon now because I don't think you want to go anywhere right now, do you? Um, people use this excuse all the time when they do something wrong. Nobody's perfect. How would you even know what perfect is if there wasn't a God? If perfection didn't exist, it would be an illusion. It'd be real easy to then go to the atheism side if we didn't know this. God is spirit, Jesus said. God is Father. And then John, thinking about what he learned from Jesus' life, said God is love. If you want to know what God is like, Scripture tells us this in Hebrews 1.3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Look at Jesus and you'll learn everything you need to learn. So two assignments before we pray and stand in the living room looking at each other instead of running to our cars. <laughs> two assignments. Read Isaiah 53, 12 verses, won't take you five minutes. And I want you to ask, who is Isaiah talking about 700 years before Jesus walked there? Who is he talking about? Then the second thing is I want you to read the book of John. This will take you several weeks. But when you read the book of John, the question you ask is, what do I learn about God, the father from Jesus? Can you do that? It'll rock your world. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for protecting us and loving us and, and giving us evidence. You said it, your words, Jesus, believe the evidence. So God, I pray that you'll raise up some people who will study your life, some people who will study your word and be defenders of those things. And then I pray God that all of us would be prepared always to give an answer for the hope that we have. You didn't leave us defenseless, Lord. You, you gave us all kinds of things. Help us to pursue those things. And God, I pray for, for the young lady, Cheyenne, who, whose grandmother passed away and doesn't even know exactly where she's going to live in the months ahead. I pray, God, that you give her peace and wisdom and that you raise up people to, to meet her needs and, and to bear her burden right now. And God, I pray for all of those folks that are struggling in marriages, struggling with, with, um, with different affirmities. I pray for Heath, God. I pray that, that this, the surgery would be, uh, an incredible success. And we're going to give you the glory and the honor for that before it ever happens, God. And I pray that, that New Life Community Church would become a church where others know we're your followers because of our radical love for each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.